Welcome to the Sermon Audio Podcast of Hill Country Bible Church, Georgetown. The podcast bringing you biblical messages that encourage you to put Christ at the center of everyday life. We're here to help you engage in the local church and to invite you into a life that matters through Jesus. If you have any questions about your next step, visit us online at hillcountry.life. And now for today's message. All right, how's everybody doing? Good, good. I want to welcome all of you who are here in this room and also all of you who are watching with us online. I want to wish you a happy Independence Day, and we're so glad that you've chosen to worship with us today. So, this morning, we are back in the book of 1 Thessalonians, and we're launching this new series called Atypical. And in this particular section of his letter to the Thessalonians, Paul talks about some pretty major hot topics. I mean, think about this, sex, community, and work. And just so you know, disclaimer up front here, today we're talking about sex, all right? So now I've said it, it's out there. And if you're a guest with us this morning, watching for the first time, here for the first time, you may have come on the wrong Sunday, or maybe you came on the right Sunday, depending on what you're looking for. But either way, I think God has you here for a reason, all right? God has something to teach every one of us. Now, I got to start with this. Why is it that we sometimes struggle to talk about sex at church? Like, do people really think that God is blushing right now? I mean, what's the hang-up that we would talk about something that is covered extensively in God's Word and is very culturally relevant? You know, is it the fact that our world now is so obsessed with sex that Christians are uncomfortable? They don't know how to handle that? Or are we embarrassed to talk about it because it's so rarely talked about in church? And for some people, sex kind of sits up on this shelf called sinful or dirty. Or could it be that we don't want to talk about it because the truth is three out of every four people here in this room, three out of every four people watching online right now have been impacted in some major way by negative sexual choices that either we made or somebody else made for us. Three out of four. I mean, think about that. Think about the pain that's represented here in this room and for those watching online. And I understand fully that you came to church today, and maybe you've never heard sex talked about in church before, and I just want to say that you're in for a, I don't want to say treat, okay, that's not exactly the right word, but you're in for something a little different this morning, okay? Let's just get that on the table. And really, we're going to talk about this for the next two weeks, and this morning's message is sort of laying the foundation for what Paul's going to say in 1 Thessalonians 4, because I believe we need some context. Now, Paul's talking about how to live a life that's pleasing to God, how to live a holy life, that is, how to stand out in the world. And here's what Paul says in the first eight verses of chapter 4. Finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now, we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus, It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The Lord will punish men for all such sins, as we've already told you and warned you. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God, 
who gives you his Holy Spirit. Okay, here Paul makes it clear that if you want to please God, you need to be sanctified. Well, that Greek word, hagiazo, it means to be set apart for a holy purpose. You were created higher than the animals. You were created by God to be set apart like him, to be different, to be holy. And the main gist of this passage, it centers around sexual purity. In verse 3, we read, It is God's will that you should avoid sexual immorality. Now, I believe before we can understand this phrase, sexual immorality, we've got to understand the flip side of it, sexual morality. In other words, we need to understand God's original perfect design for sex before we can understand what it is that we're to avoid. Make sense? I mean, the readers back then, they knew where Paul was coming from, but we're living in an entirely different culture, thousands of years removed from their culture. So today, I want to step back away from this text for a moment and talk about sexual morality from a biblical and historical context. I want us to glean a better understanding of what God has to say in his word about sex, why he created sex. And in doing so, hopefully we can learn from the author and creator of sex and trust that he knows what's best. So let me begin with just a few basics here. First of all, sex is incredible, okay? Can I say that? Sex is incredible. A painful giggle. Some of you don't know whether to laugh or is he kidding right now? The men inside are going, preach it, brother, preach it. My two sons may be confused right now because they probably think my sexual experience has been limited to two times. But, you know, <laughs> Nick's shaking his head. No, I don't, I don't know where we gave in that one. But anyhow, uh, <clears throat> hey, there's some incredible sex stuff in this book right here. I mean, you know, did you realize there's an entire book in the Old Testament, the Song of Solomon? where Solomon talks about what he wants to do with his lover, Shulamite. Not a sexy name, but she's got a great personality, if you know what I mean. And it gets really, really intimate. And I'm not going to read it to you this morning. I'm going to let you read this on your own, because for some of you, it'll be the first time you've read your Bible in a while. All right, Song of Solomon, look it up. Trust me, it goes beyond PG. But I do want to give you one Bible verse today, one passage just to show you that the Bible is not silent when it comes to sex and sexuality or anything that might be considered sexy. Proverbs 5, okay? Proverbs 5 describes a woman. says, she is a loving deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts satisfy you always. May you always be captivated by her love. This is about the time that the parents usually take kids out if they're still in here. But You know, some of you are going, whoa, I've never heard that verse before. Like, I went to Sunday school my whole life. I've actually um, collected all the verses like this in the Bible, and I have them in a little notebook. And it's how I teach men to memorize Scripture, okay? It's very, very effective. It's awesome. (laughs) Not really, but (laughs) it's a good idea. But seriously... (laughs) Come back, Brian. But seriously, if, if, you start, if you start with the premise that sex is incredible and we shouldn't be ashamed to talk about it, you know what you have then? You've got an amazing opportunity to point people to a God who loves them and more importantly can provide healing in this arena. That's why we don't need to back away from that. And you know, that's because sex is God's design. There's our second point. 
Sex is God's design, which, by the way, explains why it's so incredible. If sex is God's design, why would we be silent about it? Now, there was a recent survey of over 1,000 Christian high school students, and a vast majority of them said their parents have never, ever talked to them about sex, not once. Now, of course, they said they're not comfortable approaching their parents about it, but they also said they would welcome a caring adult to speak frankly and honestly about that to them. Folks, if sex is God's design, he designed it to be incredible, it needs to be talked about. Let me tell you, teenagers are very curious. They're going to hear it somewhere. So parents, would you rather them hear it from the world's views and values or from God's views and values? And not just parents talking to kids. If you are single and you're in a dating relationship, you need to be talking about it. You should talk about your beliefs, your values, your feelings, your temptations, your boundaries. I mean, it's amazing to me that two people can date one another, even be sexually active outside of marriage, which, by the way, the Bible says is not a good idea. But two people can be physically naked in front of each other and yet not have the emotional depth and maturity to talk about it. See, there's something wrong with that. And not just teenagers, not just single people. If you're married, two of the biggest problems in most marriages are sex and finances. And nearly all the sexual problems have nothing to do with the physical. They're emotional, psychological, spiritual. And yet couples don't talk about it. Now, most marriages get into this rut. It's just routine, maintenance sex, just enough to keep the marriage going. I mean, why are we afraid to talk about it? If God designed it, and he designed it to be incredible, it should be talked about. And just a little aside here, I thought about this. You know, in the whole debate between evolution and intelligent design, I believe sex points to the existence of a creator. I really do. I think about sex and say there must be a God. I mean, it, it drives me crazy to think that evolution could somehow get credit for this incredible thing. I mean, evolution might be able to explain how body parts fit together, but it can't even begin to explain the incredible, intense joy and spiritual union and emotions and sense of heaven that accompanies sex. And also, does evolution get credit for the fact that there's a part of a woman's body that serves no biological function whatsoever? I mean, it's not useful in anything reproductive or biological. It's just there for pleasure. That is God's design, people. Kind of weird to talk about here, I know, but at least my mom's not in the service, but okay. My mother-in-law is, but that's a different story. I might skip lunch today, but I, I seriously, I share that because we shouldn't back away from this kind of stuff. This stuff all points to the author and designer and creator. And there's a reason we need to get there. You see, we need to give credit where credit is due. Sex is God's plan. Sex is God's design from the very beginning. You know, it's not like God thought of sex after he had all these other good ideas. No, he knew what he was doing. When God introduced Eve to Adam, I can't imagine Adam going, oh, man, something else to name. She's standing there naked in front of him. He's like, dude, God, you're the man. Whoa, wrap her up and I'll take her. Forget wrapping her up. I'll take her just like that. Loose translation of the Hebrew there. but God created sexual pleasure. It was his plan from the beginning. Now, if you don't believe that God created sex to be incredible, that he has a particular design for it. If you just believe you're nothing more than an advanced form of evolutionary goo, then 
okay, why would you want anything to govern your morality, your behavior? You wouldn't. But if sex is God's creation, hear me on this. If God created it, then he has the authority to set some ground rules, right? To apply some guidelines. And if it is his design, wouldn't you say that maybe, just maybe, he knows how it works best? So his guidelines will enhance our lives rather than destroy our lives. I mean, I try to tell people all the time, God is not down on sex. He created it. You know what God is down on? God is down on pain. He wants to save you from that. And that's why there are dozens and dozens of passages in the Bible that say God's design for sex is to be in the context of a marriage between a husband and a wife. Over in Mark 10, Jesus says, but at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. When you talk about a graphic verse for intercourse, two becoming one. That's God's design. He didn't design it to be this purely physical act like our world teaches it is right now. Like wham, bam, thank you, ma'am, move on. It's no big deal. It was just an event. Sex is not that big a deal. That's a lie, people. That is a lie. I mean, when you play just a physical event, softball or golf, you don't remember all your scores years later. But when you become one with somebody else, you remember that forever. It's called the oneness factor. One plus one equals one for the rest of your life. I believe one of the biggest lies in society today is that sex is just a physical act. It's just bodies mingling and colliding together. That's not at all the way God designed sex to be. God designed it to touch the deepest part of who you are, your soul. So sex is incredible. Sex is God's design. How about one more thing you need to know about sex? This is important. Sex is lurking. What I mean by lurking is it's always around, right? It's everywhere. Some of you don't know what a lurker is. If you don't know what a lurker is, you may be the lurker, but the, the, the lurker is the person who's always present, right? Persistent, you know, lurker is the person that no matter where you go, they want something from you. They want to be noticed. Okay, that's sex. Sex is everywhere you go, right? You, you drive around. It's used for advertising. It's on billboards, bus stops. Every magazine cover has a sexual image or sexual content, movies, television shows. Everywhere you go, sex is used to sell. It is lurking. I mean, what used to be relatively hidden from society about 40 years ago is now mainstream. It's in your face. It's part of American culture. It's as pervasive as the air we breathe. In fact, I would say we have so glamorized sex that we've come to normalize it. And that gets dangerous, right? When you go through life and you think, ah, it's no big deal. That movie's no big deal. That photo's no big deal. Everybody's doing it. It's just not that big a deal. No, no, no. It is a big deal. Because before you know it, you can become caught in its snare. Some of you don't even know that you're caught yet, but sexual sin is influencing your life. See, all of us, and as sexual beings, if we choose to ignore God's guidelines for us, Sex becomes a hungry predator that goes after our soul. And here's what I want you to understand if you're a Jesus follower. Sexual sin hinders God's work in your life 
in a way that is so insidious. It can become easily addictive. Now, if you're a believer in Jesus, the enemy, Satan, he's lost you forever. But what he can do is make you ineffective today. And he makes you spiritually impotent by taking God's beautiful, perfect design for sex and turning it upside down to tempt you. And let me just pause here for a second and interject two points, lest anyone get on their high horse right now. First of all, all of us are sexually broken. All of us are sexually broken in some way, shape, or form. The Bible very clearly says that sin impacts every portion, every fiber of our being. It impacts our minds, our emotions, our will, our spirituality, and yes, even our sexuality. So if you think you're somehow immune to this, you're wrong. I mean, you may be shut down in this whole arena of sex. Like, well, I don't think about it. I'm not tempted by it. It rarely even crosses my mind. But if that's the case, you might want to ask yourself why. Because that can be a problem, especially if you're married. Sin impacts every part of every individual. So we're all broken, and we're all on equal ground at the foot of the cross. You need to understand that. It enables you to give grace to other people. You know, some of us may struggle more in this arena than others, but don't pretend that you're not broken in some way in this area. So first, we're all broken sexually. Second, no matter what you've done, please hear me on this, no matter what you've done or experienced sexually in your life, in the past, forgiveness and healing are available. You know, for some reason, and I don't know why, sex carries this stigma in the church. And it seems to be this area that self-righteous Christians love to pick on. And, and that drives me crazy. That's baloney, okay? That's hypocrisy. And I think there have been far, far too many 300-pound-plus preachers condemning sexual sin while overlooking their own pride, their own critical spirit, their own struggle with gluttony, maybe. And so don't pile guilt on yourself in this arena, and don't let others judge you, okay? Now, you need to avoid sexual immorality in the future, but you can accept God's forgiveness for your past. Very important. And hear me here. I, I'm not saying that sexual sin is not especially hazardous to you and others, because it is. It really is. You know, in some ways, sexual sin can be more harmful and addictive because it involves every part of your being. Physically, it involves all of your senses. Emotionally, it bonds you at a very, very deep level. Spiritually, it, it affects your soul. So it is something to watch out for. And like all sin, if left unchecked, it'll wreak havoc and destruction in your life. Sin destroys marriages. Sin destroys families. Sin destroys friendships. Sin destroys you physically, emotionally, financially, spiritually. And sexual sin is no exception. And that brings us back to our main passage this morning and why Paul addresses this matter in the first place. Look at verse 3. It is God's will, it's God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you learn to control his own body in a way that's holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God. Right, what do we see here? God wants us to be sanctified, holy. Okay, those two words have the same Greek root term, hagiazo. It means be different, be set apart. It means be atypical, be atypical. 
And a lot of people think, oh, holy, that, that means I got to be like a monk in a hidden monastery, sewing sheepskin boots together or something. Now, that's not holy. Holy means you're set apart. You're set apart from the world's way and set apart to God's way. Being holy means becoming who God wants me to be and not who the world tempts me to be. And part of holiness is avoiding sexual immorality. Now contrast that to verse 5, which says what? The, the heathen live in passionate lust. In other words, no rules, no boundaries, just give in to every lust, every desire. Does that sound like our culture today just a little bit? Uh, even, even when I was growing up, back when there were 8-track players and VHS tapes, you know, way back in the day, one of the main basketball stars back then was a guy by the name of Wilt the Stilt Chamberlain. Anybody remember Wilt Chamberlain? Big old dude. Well, he wrote this book called A View from Above. And in this book, Chamberlain boasted that since age 15, he had had sex with over 20,000 women. That's 1.2 women a day. He said that some of those relationships were actually meaningful. I'm not even sure how to interpret that. But I'm not going to surprise any of you, am I, if I say the world lives in passionate lust. Whatever your instincts tell you to do, just do it. Is anybody surprised by that? Not at all. It was true 50 years ago. It was true 2,000 years ago in Thessalonica. It's true today. Folks, you may not realize this. Teenage pregnancy right now is at an all-time high. Despite all the information, right, all the education that's out there. LGBTQ and blurring gender lines, that's the hot topic of the day, isn't it? Sex and sexual diseases are on the rise. They're going crazy in our culture today. A recent survey said that only 3% of people said they're going to wait until they're married to have sex, just 3%. And right now, there are all these books being published about the proper rules of etiquette for having extramarital relationships. Folks, the world lives in passionate lust. The world thinks nobody should have to limit their desires. And I would say in a culture of relativism where there is no absolute moral truth, that shouldn't surprise us. It doesn't shock me at all. In fact, I kind of expect it from the world. But what is concerning is when the church, the body of Christ, is no different. That's a problem. You know, whereas the world kind of throws off all restraint, Christians are called to live a life of moral purity. Look back at verse 3. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. Now, notice who's giving this command. It's God, okay? People condescendingly occasionally will say to me, you know, pastor, you're entitled to your opinion. I just disagree. But this is not man's opinion. This is God's word. And you can disagree. That's fine. But don't pretend that God's going to be okay with that. In verse 8, Paul says, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God who gives you his Holy Spirit. And I knew going into this passage today, I wasn't going to win any popularity contests. But can I just remind you here that I didn't make this up. This is not my word of wisdom or instruction or my standard. This is just what God's plan is. So if you're upset, you know, don't shoot the messenger. And now we arrive at the million-dollar phrase. Here it is. The Bible says it is God's will that you should avoid sexual immorality. Now let me elaborate on this term sexual immorality. It's the Greek word porneia. We got our word pornography from this. 
And over the years, I've heard some wacky definitions of porneia from supposedly informed Bible scholars. But in the final analysis, they're, they're nothing more than a grasping at straws to attempt to justify sexual impurity. And if you want to listen to somebody or get somebody to tell you what you want to hear, you can always find someone who will tell you what you want to hear. But if you want to be honest about what that phrase means, let me explain it to you. You know, for those of you who don't know, I actually have a Greek undergraduate major. And I know you're thinking, who sends their kid to college to major in Greek, right? $80,000 of tuition to be able to order fluently at Plaka Greek Cafe or something. All right, seriously, I actually started as a religion major, finished as a religion major, and I tacked on the Greek major with that. But I love, love, love the stuff. Plato, Aristotle, Septuagint. That's why I geek out on the Greek words up here from time to time. I mean, language, they fascinate me. And they're actually pretty important when it comes to understanding, especially the New Testament, to know the original language. But I'm not going to point you to my own knowledge in explaining this term, porneia. Instead, I'm going to point you to a higher authority. A man by the name of F.F. Bruce, a theologian, he was perhaps the greatest Greek scholar of our generation, and he has an excellent definition of porneia and its influence and what it meant in the Roman and Greek cultures of the first century. So you ready to hear it? Well, sorry, we're, we're out of time this morning, so <laughs> you're going to have to come back next week. Uh, <laughs> why am I enjoying this so much, right? You're a sick, sick pastor. <laughs> okay. Seriously, next Sunday, I promise, we're going to really dive into this, okay? We're going to define porneia, and not only that, we're actually going to talk about and discuss the issues, the hang-ups we have in living this out. So if you're going to be out of town next week, be sure to catch it online. Well, let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you that we can speak openly and honestly about a subject that's talked about hundreds, if not thousands of times throughout your word, because it was your design, and we want to give credit where credit's due. I believe it points to the existence of a God who loves us, an incredible creator who, who gives us incredible gifts. And, and I pray that, first of all, we would begin to talk about this, that we would not be ashamed, because in the, in the secrecy of it all and, and hiding it and not talking about it, a lot of damage is done. I pray for the parents here that they would talk to their children about it at an early age before the world gets to them. I pray that for those who are dating, that they would not just be quiet about this, but, but really say, hey, here, here's what I believe. Here are my values. Here are my temptations. Here are the boundaries we need to set. And for the married couples, and I know it's, it's a big struggle in many marriages, that they would speak openly and honestly about this. And God, help us to acknowledge, too, that, that sex is lurking. It's everywhere. It's, it's insidious. It, it can just get into our lives so easily. We have to keep our guard up. And Lord, I pray that in the midst of this, wherever we are, that we would recognize that, hey, we're all fallen. We're all at the foot of the cross. We're all broken in every way, including sexually. And for those who have been through a lot in their past, that they would find forgiveness and healing and know that that's available no matter what they've done, no matter what they have experienced. You're a God of incredible grace. So Lord, as we move forward and we talk about some of these challenging issues, I pray that you would help us to just apply these to our lives and stand out, that we would be atypical, that we would be salt and light in the midst of a dark world. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Uh, you guys have a great time today on July 4th, and we'll see you next week.